Welcome back to the Big Amateurs and Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. Just a reminder that you can find all of my podcast materials on my podcast website, and that is bigamateurism.com. Got my episodes there, my show notes, my descriptions, so a little bit about my background. And then I also have some resources that I list on an episode-to-episode basis. So you can dig in if you, on your own if you want to and check out those resources. And then I also have a blog that I've been writing in, cagerredux.com, C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X.com. My podcast can be found on Apple, Spotify, TuneIn, Google, Stitcher, all the big third-party directories, so you can find me there as well. In today's episode, we're going to talk about amateurism. And you know, I have used that word so many times so far in this podcast, and I've talked about it contextually and sort of laid out some of the contours of amateurism as it is relevant to the issue that I am discussing. But I haven't really isolated the concept and talked about it in detail. And I think that we probably ought to do that heading into this oral argument. This is probably going to be the last episode that I get up before the oral argument. Today is uh, March 28th, and the argument is on March 31st. And while I'm thinking about it, just wanted to give you a little bit of information on the oral argument if you want to listen to it. So the uh, oral arguments in the COVID era are being done remotely. They, they call it teleconference. I'm not sure if it's a Zoom feed or a truly a, a teleconference audio-only feed. But as you probably know, uh, TV cameras aren't allowed in the U.S. Supreme Court anyway. So you get an audio, you don't get a video. And then you'll get a transcript. So the day after the oral argument on Wednesday, there will be a full audio available and also a transcript. But approved news organizations are allowed to do a live feed of the argument. And so on Wednesday morning at 10, I'm going to listen in on C-SPAN. C-SPAN's already said that it's going to cover the argument. And we'll hear in real time maybe what the justices are thinking. So another thing just to keep in mind, oral arguments, very short. It's it's not the, the kind of engagement that is long enough or detailed enough to really get a sense of what the justices may be thinking. And it really is dangerous to try to read the tea leaves based on questions at oral argument, but it's fun to do. So I'm going to do it. And I'm sure all the news outlets that are covering this are probably going to do it too. So each side is 30 minutes and that may seem like a decent amount of time, but boy, it flies when you're behind the podium and you have nine justices who are trying to get in some questions. And so you may really not get a complete balanced sense of what the bench as a full nine-member bench is thinking about these issues. And then on the athlete side, remember that the United States of America has intervened in the appeal and has been granted permission to appear at oral argument. So they're going to speak at the oral argument, and it's called divided argument, and there's a procedure for that under Supreme Court rules. So basically, the athletes are splitting their time with the United States. So you're not going to get a ton of exposure to those two views because they're going to divide their time. I'm not sure exactly how they're going to do it. But the way that the structure of the argument is going to work is that the NCAA will start because they filed the appeal. They are the appellant 
in this case. And so they will have their 30 minutes, and I'm guessing Seth Waxman's going to argue it, and then he's going to reserve some time for rebuttal. So the NCAA goes first, then the NCAA, I'm sorry, then the athletes and the United States go second with their divided argument. And then the NCAA gets to come back around in rebuttal and respond to what the athletes have said and what the United States has said. But again, it's going to come and go so quickly and it's going to be a flurry of activity. And I'm guessing we're going to have what's called a hot bench. You know, sometimes you go into oral argument and I'll just say this as I'm an attorney and uh, I did some appellate work and I've argued, you know, a fair number of cases in front of appellate courts. And sometimes you go into oral argument and the bench is very passive and you have your prepared argument and you really kind of want some questions just for two reasons. One, to sort of really flesh out the arguments in a more conversational way, but also to get a sense of what the justices are thinking, because that's really your only chance to get some window into how they may be looking at the case. And I'm guessing that for this case, on this issue, that we're going to have what's called a hot bench, and the questions are going to start coming quickly, and they're going to be rapid fire. And they may come from multiple justices, and sometimes the justice-to-justice communication, which is really a subtle feature of oral argument, is really important because you then get a sense, maybe, as the case has been conferenced in the justices, have sort of exchanged some thoughts on the case, you may get some insight into what the divisions are among the court. So pay attention to that. When When you hear justices asking questions that really may not be directed to the advocates, but a really crosstalk between the justices, that can be a really fertile ground for understanding what the bench is thinking. So I'm really looking forward to it, and I'll listen to it live, and then what I intend to do following day, once I get a transcript, I'm going to hold off writing or, or talking about the oral argument until I really have a chance to review the transcript and listen to the argument. Sometimes there are things in the argument, emphases, voice tone, the way that the human interaction occurs that can give you some insight that doesn't show up in a transcript. And then by the same token, the transcript sometimes takes you know some of the energy out of what you may perceive to be an active exchange, a live exchange, that really doesn't have that much importance when you actually look at what the justice has said. So you, you have to take all this information in, I think, before you really can start to comment on it with a fair, balanced impression of, of everything that was presented at oral argument. So let's talk about amateurism. And I think that this is going to come up a lot. Obviously, it is the linchpin not only of the NCAA's business model, but also the, this notion in the rule of reason analysis that amateurism is relevant only as a pro-competitive justification for the NCAA's anti-competitive amateurism-based compensation limits. And that is a market analysis. And this brings us back to the fundamental tension between the commercial component of amateurism and then amateurism as a freestanding normative, Norman Rockwell, chariots of fire kind of principle that we have borrowed from the British value system. And I think it's important to, to tease that out a little bit, because that tension has played out through the antitrust litigation, beginning back in Board of Regents, when you had these two completely different, I would say almost irreconcilable views of the relevance and application of antitrust laws. So in, you know, that was the case that challenged the NCAA's exclusive contract rights and its contracts with big-time media outlets for, for football, for big-time football. 
And the football interest came in and said, this is a violation of antitrust laws, and they won. But the way that the court framed those issues, you had Justice Stevens, John Paul Stevens, wrote the majority. It was a seven to two opinion. You're going to hear a lot about Board of Regents during the oral argument on Wednesday. But Justice Stevens took really this kind of purely economic commercial approach. And once having determined that this practice. And they were looking at the practice, not the institution or the institutional values. They were looking at the actual transaction and the practice that was at issue in that case. And it was a purely commerce-driven analysis. It was a pure economics analysis. And they looked at all of the justifications that the NCAA used to determine whether or not this anti-competitive market behavior had any justification that would enhance consumer demand, that would enhance consumer choice, that would make free market principles work more effectively and more efficiently. And that was really the extent of the inquiry. They rejected any non-economic, non-commercial justifications for that. And I'll just note, and I don't want to get too deep in the weeds into Board of Regents, but in that case, because it was a, a commercial contract, the NCAA didn't really argue amateurism. In fact, during oral arguments, Justice White, Wizard White, I I talked about him a couple episodes ago, who dissented in Board of Regents, and and he had a completely different approach I'll talk about in just a second. But during oral argument, he questioned the NCAA's attorney. It was a guy named Frank Easterbrook, who had been a former solicitor general for the United States, very similar to, to Seth Waxman, has the same kind of background and then pathway. But Easterbrook was representing the NCAA, and he didn't raise amateurism or really any other legitimate non commercial responses to the challenge. He was basically staying within this economics analysis and saying that the NCAA didn't have enough market power to influence the market and, you know, some other kind of in-the-weeds economic arguments. During oral argument, Justice White called him out and said, you know, why aren't you making these non-economic justifications for the behavior? And Easterbrook just says, I mean, it was really kind of a stunning admission, and it's binding on the NCAA. He said, well, Your Honor, we construed your prior case law, like this Goldfarb case I talked about involving an attorney's association and professional engineers involving a professional society, in which the Supreme Court held that they were subject to antitrust scrutiny and potential liability, and that their characterization of themselves as an association of, quote-unquote, the learned professions— didn't place them outside antitrust laws. And so Easterbrook says to White, you know, we read those cases and we don't believe that these non-economic justifications for our business model are relevant to this issue. And, you know, so they didn't argue amateurism. One of the, when scholars have looked back at Board of Regents and criticized Board of Regents, one of the primary criticisms is that they think that the NCAA's attorneys made some fundamental mistakes in how they pitched the case, particularly given the fact that the Tenth Circuit was a split decision, a two-to-one decision, and the dissenting judge, Judge Barrett, he went NCAA right down the line and said, this isn't commercial activity, this is a completely different issue. And it was all about amateurism and the, the nobility of the sacred principle of amateurism and the educational mission and that all those things just weren't commercial activity and that we had to look at the nature of the organization and, and not just their conduct, not just their commercial conduct, 
or their claimed commercial conduct. You had to really focus on the value system and the non-economic justifications and, and all of these things that really transcend antitrust law. And that was the basis of Justice White's dissent, and he referred to Barrett's dissent when he was issuing his opinion. But Justice White was speaking a completely different language. He was speaking the language of honor and principle and integrity and all these fluffy things that the NCAA has so successfully marketed. But remember, this was 1984, way before the modern sports business model evolved because of Board of Regents. And so in 1984, for example, the NCAA men's basketball tournament, which came to be known as March Madness, I think was worth in 1984 dollars about $15 million, $15 million. In today's dollars, I think that's like $40 million. That uh, contract today is worth a billion dollars a year. So you're not talking about differences in degree. You're talking about differences in kind. But that same business versus non-business or commercial versus non-commercial or economic versus non-economic dichotomy is present today. And that's what the NCAA is essentially arguing. And it is amateurism-based. So amateurism wasn't front and center in Board of Regents. It is right in the middle of this discussion. And it's important to understand exactly what that means, exactly how the NCAA has used it. And I wouldn't be surprised if one of the very first questions from a justice to Seth Waxman as he begins his argument is, Mr. Waxman, define amateurism. And that would be a heck of a question because Seth Waxman is going to have to do the NCAA two-step because the fact of the matter is the NCAA to this date, over almost 100 years of propagandizing the concept of amateurism for commercial purposes, it cannot offer an intelligent, positive definition of amateurism. And so I want to go really to the history of amateurism how it's been used in American college athletics, where it came from, and how it has evolved in the NCAA's business model as a justification for not paying the laborers in a multi-billion dollar market. And I'm going to use a framework that's going to bring in a number of different sources. So I'm just going to kind of tell you what I'm relying on here, because there was some really good briefing in the Austin Supreme Court case by non-parties, by, you know, amicus, friends of the court. And there's one that one brief that I really, really like, and I am going to link to it in the show notes. And it's called Brief of Historians as Amici Curi, Supporting Respondent, which basically means we're friends of the court and we are writing on behalf of the athletes. We agree with the athletes. And so you have, uh, I think, six sports historians and... Three of them have been influential in my work. I've mentioned two of them. So Ronald Smith, who wrote the book Sports and Freedom, that's another resource I'm going to draw on here in this episode because I think Smith beautifully captures the history of amateurism and frames it in terms of American values and makes the case that quite literally amateurism is un-American as applied to American college athletics. And I said that in one of my early posts. And, you know, I I just want to say this too. I I want to be careful about using loaded language that immediately turns people off. And when you say that something is un-American, you know, people get bowed up and they get defensive. I'm going to make the case, actually, Smith makes the case, and, and I'm going to present it through my filter, that using the concept, the British iteration of 19th century amateurism as a business model in the 21st century in America is 
quite literally un-American. So Smith is a uh, professor emeritus at Penn State University, and he's written a number of books. He, ha- he wrote one re- very recently that I have not read yet. It's called The Myth of the Amateur, The History of College Athletic Scholarships. And I've been most influenced by two of his books, uh, Sports and Freedom, which came out in 1988, and then Pay for Play, A History of Big-Time College Athletic Reform. And that came out in, in 2011. And then we also have John Thielen. I, he, he's an interesting addition to this. I talked about him in my episode on Red Grange and what it, why it is that uh, universities are in this game of big-time college sports. And Thielen is a professor at the University of Kentucky, and he's written a number of important books on sports. And the one that I used was uh, The Games Colleges Play, and it was a discussion about sports reform movements. And he talks about the Carnegie Report and really a brilliant analysis of the Carnegie Report, I think. And and Smith looks at that, too, and that's important. Then there's a third uh, person who has been probably more on the front lines of this athlete's rights debate than anybody else, and that's Taylor Branch. And he is a historian, really a civil rights historian. And uh, he's a local guy. I'm in, I live in North Carolina, and he's from uh, UNC. He's well-known here, but he's, he's well-known as uh, having written one of the seminal books on civil rights, and it was a trilogy on Martin Luther King Jr. And then in 2011, he wrote an article titled The Shame of College Sports in The Atlantic, and he takes the historian's view of the history of the NCAA and its use of amateurism as it has been brought forward into the 21st century business model. It was very provocative because he tied into the racial component of the 21st century NCAA business model. And I actually have a copy of that Atlantic issue. You know, I, as I was going through my archives on stuff I had just kind of saved because it was relevant to this issue and I've been following it for a long, long time. But I have the October 2011 issue of The Atlantic. I have it right here in front of me, actually. And on the front of the magazine, on the cover of the magazine, is a bare-chested, athletic, African-American athlete. And he has his arms folded, and on his left arm, upper left arm, there is a stamp that says property of NCAA, which evokes some interesting themes just visually. And then when you go to the actual article itself, it's a you know double page layout. And there is the face of an African-American athlete. It looks like a football player with his head down with a very solemn look. And those, those images are really powerful because they capture this unstated notion of racial exploitation. And there was, there was a particular quote in that article that really caught fire. And, and I, I want to just identify it here now because this whole discussion of amateurism is so important in the context of the NCAA's exploitation model because the vast majority of the athletes who provide the most value in the product are African-American. The article talks about race, but in a very indirect way. And that's true for a lot of the commentators who have bumped up against the race issue. They're very careful not to just explicitly call it a racist enterprise. They bump up against it. They suggest the racial component, but don't really break it down. So here's what Branch says. Slavery analogies should be used carefully. College athletes are not slaves. Yet to survey the scene, corporations and universities enriching themselves on the backs of uncompensated young men 
whose status as student-athletes deprives them of the right-to-due process guaranteed by the Constitution, is to catch an unmistakable whiff of the plantation. And then he goes on to talk about perhaps uh, you know colonialism as being a more relevant metaphor. But that quote, the whiff of the plantation, really was kind of the signature line from that article. And then Branch went out and kind of used that as a springboard into making speeches and appearances. And, you know, he did a documentary and I think he wrote a book. He's testified before Congress. And and I'm familiar with all of that stuff. But I think that this brief that these historians filed is important because they just do a takedown on on amateurism as a historical concept and then as it's been used in the NCAA. And so I'm going to go use that framework to talk about amateurism itself. I'm also going to use the NCAA's own constitution and principle 2.9, which is the principle of amateurism. I'm going to talk about this Ronald Smith book, Sports and Freedom. I'm going to invoke Miles Brand's 2006 State of the Association speech when he tried to reconcile this century-long tension between the professionalization in big-time college sports and the, and the uh, institutional attachment to amateurism. And he did that through his formulation of the collegiate model. And when you look at it, at what he actually said, you can see that they're really the NCAA has locked itself into a fundamental, profound hypocrisy on these two basic principles and having the best of both worlds. And now they want that hypocrisy ensconced into federal law. And and that's really a big part of what this quest for the Iron Throne of college regulation is. It is to give them the sole authority to continue to engage in this hypocrisy and to have it protected from any outside scrutiny or any outside regulatory threat. So let's talk about amateurism at the definitional level. So I want to read the NCAA's Constitution, Principle 2.9, the principle of amateurism, which has received probably more scrutiny than any other words or any other provision in the entire NCAA Division I manual. And here's what it says, the the principle of amateurism. Student-athletes shall be amateurs in an intercollegiate sport, and their participation should be motivated primarily by education and by the physical, mental, and social benefits to be derived. Student participation in collegiate athletics is an avocation, and student-athletes should be protected from exploitation by professional and commercial enterprises. So, sounds flowery, like a lot of the NCAA language, but where does this come from? Like, what is the source, the root source of how the NCAA describes amateurism? Because as I'm going to explain in just a few minutes, that is not a definition of amateurism. It is a description of a principle of amateurism. And Judge Wilkin, in her decision in Austin, uh, her 104-page decision, in which she was addressing amateurism as a pro-competitive justification that the NCAA asserted as crucial to enhancing and promoting consumer demand for college sports, she just ripped that apart. And she said, you know, I've been doing this, been looking at this evidence for years, and to this day, I haven't gotten an intelligent definition of amateurism. And that ties into really some observations that um, Ronald Smith made in, in Sports and Freedom. And that is that amateurism, because of its very nature, it 
really isn't subject to a clear positive definition. So where did this uh, principle 2.9 come from? Well, when you reverse engineer that language, it takes you back really to uh, 1906, 1906, and the first iteration of amateurism in the NCAA Constitution in 1906. And it really prohibited athletes who are paid or receive directly or indirectly any money or financial concession. Not very specific. Then in 1916, the NCAA attempted to define an amateur as one who participates in competitive physical sports only for pleasure and the physical, mental, moral, and social benefits derived therefrom. And then in 1922, to that language I just read, they added, the sport is nothing more than an avocation. And an avocation is defined as a mere hobby, something someone does for pleasure or on the side and not for remuneration or money. So you have this antiquated understanding of amateurism that takes us back into the early 20th century in American college sports. But to really understand the historical underpinnings of amateurism, you have to go to 19th century Britain and its prevailing culture, which was undoubtedly elitist, classist, racist, and sexist. And it was based on class separation and distinction and the protection of the aristocracy and the nobility, where what you received was through birthright, not through hard work. And this that taps into how Smith looks at amateurism and the evolution of British amateurism to American amateurism and says this is you know this is why we fought a war. <laughs> we fought a war to get away from all that stuff, you know, because in America we believe in equality of rights, we believe in equality of opportunity, and we believe in egalitarian principles and that regardless of your how you were born into this world and into uh, American culture, you are on equal footing in terms of your ability to participate freely in the marketplace and use your talents to bring whatever the market will bear. Yet the NCAA is borrowing this obviously outdated, indefensible principle as a business model to suppress the labor of black revenue producing athletes. And within the four corners of their antitrust economics analysis and using amateurism as a pro-competitive justification for their compensation limits, the NCAA is saying that consumers have a, a, an unquenchable thirst for amateurism and that amateurism itself as a defining quality of the product is the, the secret sauce that brings consumers to the product. And without it, the product would, wouldn't be successful. It, the market would collapse and all this gloom and doom stuff that the NCAA always argues. And there's simply no evidence to support that. And one of the things that got teased out in this Austin case is that between O'Bannon and Austin, in the, in the time period between those two suits, there had been a number of additional, quote-unquote, compensation or, or benefits that were given to athletes above the value of their scholarship limit that were pitched in, in litigation as meaningful and substantial 
and that there was zero evidence, and this came through in the expert testimony of the economists, the sports economists that the athletes used, uh, Dan Rasher and Roger Knoll, their two primary economics experts in the court relied heavily on their opinions. But they said, you know, look, this, you know, we don't have to do a survey or go through some kind of empirical machination to, to try to figure out what happened here. We use what's called a quote unquote natural experiment. We can look at what actually happened in the market. And what's happened between O'Bannon and Austin is that you've had an increase in these benefits, which are inconsistent with NCAA's conceptualization of amateurism. And the world hasn't uh, stopped and the sky hasn't fallen. And in fact, the value of the quote-unquote amateur product has increased in value. So the, the bottom line here is that this idea of amateurism not only has no defensible historical root, as applied in the market, in a market analysis, the market is saying, we don't really care about amateurism. We care about watching the highest quality and, and in fact, the most professionalized iteration of college sports. And we will do that and continue to do it regardless of whether or not these athletes get paid. And that's the truth of the matter. So why is it that the NCAA clings to amateurism? Well, it's because it is and has been since the 1950s a way to justify fixing the cost of labor. And in Judge Wilkins' analysis on consumer demand for amateurism as a pro-competitive defense, she really lays it out very well. And I'm going to quote from, from her opinion here in just a minute. But back to this natural experiment argument and this notion that you know the NCAA says consumers have a preference and a and a thirst for amateurism itself as a normative principle and this the notion that if athletes get paid then the market's going to collapse and consumers are going to flee i have my own natural experiment that i use to explain this when people talk about you know paying athletes and the impact that's going to have and they fall into the propaganda trap that the NCAA has set that it's going to mean the death of college sports and amateurism in and of itself, uh, you know, as the secret sauce and all that stuff. But all you have to do is look at the range of products available within the three divisions. And I'm going to use Division One men's basketball because I think it teases out most clearly the extremes in the types of business models that exist within the NCAA structure. So remember, Division Three does not offer athletic scholarships. And the admissions process is driven, at least in theory, primarily on the academic fit. And yeah, do they recruit athletes? Yes. Do they make concessions in the admissions process for athletes they really want? Probably so. And most of these schools are private. So, you know, they're, they don't, and they don't get a lot of scrutiny because they're not really important players in the business model. But that is the model that a lot of critics of big time college sports point to as sort of the gold standard in college sports. And it's the more, more um, closely tied to this amateurism ideal, the, you know, the Norman Rockwell chariots of fire version of amateurism that's so appealing at a sentimental level. But because it is the amateur, most amateur product in the entire college sports enterprise, wouldn't it make sense, according to the NCAA's logic, that there would be more consumer demand for that product than for the most professionalized 
versions of the product on the Division One side. And and again, I want to stay in the basketball arena here to make this point, but I challenge you to answer this question. Which two teams played in the 2019 Division Three Men's Basketball Championship game? And I'll just note, I have to go back to 2019 because obviously last year's tournaments were canceled. And, and this doesn't get much coverage, the Division Three Winter Sports Championships for this year, for 2021, were canceled as well. So there's no men's or women's Division Three basketball championships in Division Three this year. They made a safety-based decision that it didn't make sense to go forward. And that's a whole other uh, discussion. So who did play in that 2019 championship game? Well, it was the University of Wisconsin Oshkosh Titans against the Swarthmore College Phoenix. And I'm sure it was a great game. And I'm not saying this to make fun of Division Three basketball. I, I love to see the NCAA promote Division Three basketball and Division Three sports more than they do and put it on TV. But the reason they don't is that consumers don't want to watch it because it's not the best product. It's not the best level of competition. It's not the most professionalized level of competition. And Americans want to see the best play against the best. And yes, Division Three is nice and it's charming. And maybe it has preserved some semblance of the amateur ideal that the NCAA claims it's all about. But it doesn't have market value. It has absolutely zero market value. And all of those programs, all of those schools, all of the, the entire Division Three product loses money. It's paid out of general university operating expenses, and, and I've talked about that earlier too. So let's compare that, for which there's zero consumer demand, with the most professionalized product in the entire NCAA sports industry. And what is that? That's Duke and Kentucky basketball. Both of those products are explicitly, purposefully built around the one-and-done basketball market, this very small group of basketball players that have the talent and skill and ability to go straight from high school into the NBA. But, but because of the NBA's one-and-done rule, the, year, the rule that you have to be 19 years old to be eligible for the NBA draft, funnels most of that talent through the NCAA system. Uh, some of it, you know, some of these guys sit out a year, they work with IMG sports, or they do something on their own, or they go to Europe, maybe that's less common. Or now, increasingly, they play in the NBA G League. But the model still has most of those kids running through the NCAA, which means they're running through Kentucky and Duke, because Kentucky and Duke monopolized the one-and-done market. That has been a, an evolution in both programs, and that's their business model is built upon that. Well, so what does that mean? That means that Duke and Kentucky, and with the blessing of their university, their conference, and the NCAA, are bringing in athletes who have zero intention of staying to get a degree. They have zero intention of staying beyond one year. And their primary goal is to use the platform that those two universities have created to kind of groom their resume for the NBA draft, to receive the best coaching on the planet, they have access to the best facilities on the planet. And then through these two Hall of Fame coaches, they have a built-in network that is supportive 
of their one-year stopover to put themselves in a position, in a market position, to maximize the value of their athletic and basketball skill and talent and visibility. So looking at those two products, the Duke and Kentucky basketball product on the one hand, and the University of Wisconsin Oshkosh and Swarthmore College products on the other hand, how is it, under the NCAA's logic, that a game between Duke and Kentucky, even this year where neither team had a very successful season, would be one of the most profitable and high-demand products that the NCAA could televise. And at the same time, nobody wants to watch the Division Three men's basketball championship. If one, if one were taking place, nobody would want to watch it, and no broadcast media outlet would televise it in a, at a time and in a slot that competed with any other meaningful commercial product. So if the NCAA's logic were correct, and they know this to be the case, and their, their arguments to keep amateurism alive are just bad faith arguments, but if they were correct in their assumptions about consumer demand for amateurism, CBS and Turner would be t- paying a, a billion dollars to televise the Division Three men's basketball tournament, and Duke and Kentucky would be playing in an empty gym in a game that loses money. And that's not happening. And it's not going to happen. So in my judgment, we don't need lawsuits and experts to, to tell us that obvious reality. We just have to look at the products that, that exist and how consumers respond to all of those products. And, you know, we can argue about whether the one and done is a good thing or not. Uh, you know, that's a that's an interesting discussion. But it also teases out this other thing. Like, I, I personally, I'm not a huge fan of one and done. I understand why Duke and Kentucky are in the market, and there are very good reasons for that. From a market standpoint, right, and a recruiting standpoint, and all that stuff. But my personal preference would be that these guys stay in school, that they get their degree, and and that means something. But by the same token, their talent has a short shelf life, so they need to go and get it while they can. The problem is that the uh, NCAA has ensconced those conflicting values into its business model. And I'm going to talk about that in a minute when I talk a little bit more specifically about Miles Brand's conceptualization of the collegiate model, which was designed to reconcile these two irreconcilable forces. But we don't, have to, we don't have to get into a big discussion about whether one and done makes sense. What we need to know is that even though there may be a preference against it, it doesn't mean that consumers stop watching. And that's another important thing that Judge Wilkin teased out in her Austin opinion and that the uh, athletes experts teased out. The NCAA confuses its mischaracterization of consumer demand with consumer behavior. Because even though their experts did some surveys and said, well, you know, there's this consumer preference for amateurism and, and all that. And yeah, that, that may be true. And there may be people like me who would prefer to, to not see a one and done, you know, kind of carousel of, of players coming and going. But, but I still watch. <laughs> so it hasn't changed my behavior. And the NCAA wants to present this fantasy world where there's this consumer d- demand for amateurism. And if amateurism is, is compromised in any way, at least according to the way the NCAA defines it, then consumers are just going to flee. And there's n- zero evidence for that. In fact, there's abundant evidence that the more professionalized these products have become, the more value they have to consumers. And the thing that drives the consumer demand primarily is that the athletes are affiliated 
with a university and that the consumer has some relationship or understanding about that university as a product, as a brand that draws them to that university and the athletes that play for that university. And that's really it. I mean, those dynamics, those consumer-driven dynamics will continue in the face of any changes to the business model that might result in compensation to the athletes. I believe that. And, and there's simply zero evidence that paying athletes is going to destroy college sports. But, and I mentioned this in a prior episode, and this is important, because these experts, the athletes experts also said, if you left the market to decide kind of what college sports looks like, and you removed these amateurism-based compensation limits, there are market incentives to preserve whatever it is that drives consumer demand for the product. So if it turns out that consumers are turned off by the fact that a single star player gets paid a bunch of money and the rest of the players on the team don't get much and there's some infighting or some discontent, and that's one of the arguments they've made, but that exists in professional sports. I think that's overstated. But if that were to to occur, the market would correct itself because every market participant has an incentive to enhance consumer demand and a disincentive to engage in behavior that is inconsistent with consumer demand. That's what markets do. And that's why experts who have been willing to kind of take this to its logical endpoint, and that is an open market for the value of the athlete services, say, well, you know, this chicken little stuff is really overstated. Let's just see what happens. What's the worst that could happen? The market has some fits and starts. It, as Judge Wilkin said in, in later in, in her opinion, there could be some trial and error foot faults that may have some short-term implications. But ultimately, the market works itself out. I mean, that happened after Board of Regents with college football when it went from a tightly controlled NCAA kind of monopolistic uh, cartel to a wide-open Wild West marketplace. And in the short term, after the Board of Regents decision, there was a glut of football content. There was a disorganized market. The The price of the value of the product went down because there was more supply and not enough demand, and the demand wasn't organized. But that sorted itself out through the operation of free market principles into this incredibly e- efficient, highly professionalized product that Power 5 football now is. And it is as much a professional product as the NFL in terms of its basic business model. And that was a process of trial and error and evolution. And and now everybody thinks it's a great thing because the Power 5 interests are throwing their bodies in front of the, the moving bus and the moving train to preserve the status quo business model. That is a product of this evolution through an open and free market. And I think the same would be true if you just opened up the athlete compensation issue. Yeah, there would be some footfalls, but the sky is not going to fall and the product's not going to die. So now I kind of want to hew a little bit uh, more closely to to these documents and these resources that I talked about. And in this brief that the historians filed, I want to just kind of identify the, the three basic arguments that they make. And in constructing a brief, the Supreme Court has very specific rules for the structure of the brief. And, you know, you do the table of contents, you have the questions presented, the authorities that you rely on, the interests of the parties. If you're an outside party, you, you summarize your argument. And then in bullet points, you lay out your argument. And that's really kind of the, the heart of the brief. And you can go to the table of contents and the argument section 
And you get an outline of, of what it is that the party's trying to say or the uh, friend of the court is trying to say. And in the argument section of this uh, historian's brief, there are three primary arguments, and I just want to identify them. Number one, amateurism in top-tier college sports is a historical fiction honored mostly in the breach. And in the brief, they go through all these examples. And you know, before the NCAA acquired meaningful regulatory authority and enforcement power in the 1940s, 1950s, the amateurism concept, yeah, it was out there, but nobody paid attention to it. It was honored mostly in its breach. Number two, there is no historical basis for supposing that amateurism is a material factor defining or driving demand for the distinct product of top-tier college sports. And that's the point that I just really made. Amateurism is just a facade to justify this um, suppressed labor cost. And number three, amateurism is little more than an excuse for exploitative and unfair treatment of college athletes as compared to others involved in top-tier college sports. And they talk about the explosion in coaching salaries and the lavish facilities, all these things that the in-system stakeholders point to and say, the athletes are, look at all these wonderful things they get, and they, they list all of these things that are the product of the money that's being spent on everything except athlete compensation. But the fact of the matter is, those expenditures are not for the primary benefit of the existing athletes. I believe they're for the primary benefit of acquiring the best talent in the talent acquisition market. And, you know, they, they can't pay the athletes outright, so they have these in-kind kind of benefits. But those benefits are not primarily d- driven to serve the existing athletes. They are designed to keep the recruiting train moving, and the talent acquisition market is where a lot of colleges win or lose games. That's just a reality in the big-time college sports business market. Model. So saying that those athletes are benefiting from these things that really are designed to bring in people who are going to compete with them to, to make the product more efficient and more valuable and more successful is really kind of really not a, a good faith argument. So but those three arguments really bring home how ridiculous it is that the NCAA relies on amateurism. And then I want to talk a little bit about how Judge Wilkin framed the issues because, you know, I think this is going to come up at oral argument because this really kind of goes to the heart of the economic analysis. And in her section on consumer demand for amateurism, and let's see, the section is titled Rule of Reason, Asserted Justification for the Challenged Restraint, A, sub A, Consumer Demand for Amateurism. And it starts on page 19 of, of the slip opinion. And I just want to read a little bit of, the, of this to help you understand how she approached the issues and how she arrived at her judgment ultimately in the case. Defendants argue that the challenged compensation limits are pro-competitive because, quote, amateurism is a key part of demand for college sports, end quote, and, quote, consumers value amateurism. The corollary is that if consumers did not believe that student-athletes were amateurism, a- amateurs, excuse me, they would watch fewer games and revenues would decrease as a result. Defendants rely on the notion that it is the principle of amateurism that drives consumer demand and that the challenged restraints are pro-competitive because they implement or effectuate that principle. They did not offer evidence to establish that the challenged compensation rules in and of themselves have any direct connection to consumer demand because they can't. 
And that's an important passage because it, it, it brings home how the NCAA has used amateurism in the four corners of the rule of reason analysis and the fact that they simply couldn't provide any credible evidence that amateurism in and of itself drives consumer demand for college sports. And then Judge Wilkin goes on to say this, and this is really, you know, this is kind of the money quote. Defendants nowhere define the nature of the amateurism they claim consumers insist upon. Defendants offer no standalone definition of amateurism, either in the NCAA rules or in argument. The principle of amateurism, as described in the current version of the NCAA's Constitution, uses the word amateurs to describe the amateurism principles and is thus circular. It does not mention compensation or payment. The Constitution says student-athletes shall be amateurs in an intercollegiate sport and their participation should be motivated primarily by education and by the physical, mental, and social benefits to be derived. Student participation in intercollegiate athletics is an avocation and student-athletes should be protected from exploitation by professional and commercial enterprises. And that is the that principle of amateurism, section 2.9 I, I referenced earlier. No connection between the principle of amateurism and the challenged compensation limits is evident. And that's it. And then she goes on to, to quote from the NCAA's own experts who say, you know, uh, one guy, the former commissioner of the SEC, who was a multi-million dollar guy, a guy named Michael Slive, said, you know, the term amateur, I've never been clear on what it is meant, either by in your question or otherwise, what is really meant by amateurism? I mean, because you, you can't define it. It's undefinable. And one of the things that uh, Ronald Smith says, that in defining amateurism, it's almost always defined by negation in terms of what it's not, which is not a positive definition of amateurism, or by the motives of the participant. And that's how the NCAA does it. It's motive determinative amateurism. And the NCAA assigns those motives. So one of the points that isn't in this historian's brief, when they're talking about the principle of amateurism and the motive determinative use of amateurism or definition of amateurism, they don't really tease out the fact that by its very definition, motive determinative amateurism or assigning motives to, to the person to define amateurism requires a choice. It implies that the person participating has a choice to adopt as, it, as their motivation the pursuit of sports as a recreation or an avocational pursuit, not for money. But the NCAA is not giving them the choice. The NCAA is imposing that value system, that belief system on the athlete and telling them that this is the only proper motivation that you can have. And if you don't have that motivation and you don't comply with the rules that enforce that motivation, then you can't compete. And that is a major flaw in, in the way that they have constructed the principle of amateurism, in my judgment. But then uh, Judge Wilkin goes on and breaks down the NCAA rules, and they really don't talk about amateurism, and they don't define amateurism, and they talk about pay, but this whole concept of pay for play, which the NCAA uses, has no meaning in, within the four corners of NCAA rules and regulations as set forth in, in the Division I NCAA manual. It just it has no meaning. 
So she goes on and then she lists all of the things that the experts relied on, these benefits that have accrued between O'Bannon and Austin and the full cost of attendance scholarship and some payments from the student assistant fund and some other funds and some catastrophic insurance that they can tap into for those that qualify for Pell Grants that they can stack those Pell Grants on the full cost of attendance scholarship. And then some payments that are really related to athlete compensation that have nothing to do with education. I'm sorry, not athlete compensation, but athlete uh, performance. You know, their athletic performance can result in some modest awards. And so you have all these things that have occurred since O'Bannon that are, are benefits above the current limit on the value of an athletic scholarship that have had zero impact on consumer demand. And that, and in that period of time, consumer demand has only increased. And so, you know, she eviscerates the NCAA's attempt to provide evidence to support the fact that consumer demand is driven by amateurism itself. And now I just want to talk a little bit about Miles Brand's conceptualization of the collegiate model, because in this entire discussion about amateurism and about the century-long tension between this American-based, values-based desire for the best and the most professionalized version of American college sports, and then the NCAA's insistence on the preservation of this Norman Rockwell version of amateurism. And again, that played out in the distinction between Stevens and White, uh, Stevens' majority opinion and, and Board of Regents and White's dissenting opinion. And it, it that tension has, has simply not been resolved in an intelligent way. But Miles Brand tried to do it in 2003, 2004 with his conceptualization of the collegiate model. So I want to read a little bit from his 2006 State of the Association speech at the 2006 NCAA annual convention that was the centennial year of the NCAA. So the NCAA was founded in uh, 1906, and then they celebrated the centennial in 2006. And Brand was really trying to bring the inherent tensions in college sports and the hypocrisy, the, the fundamental hypocrisy between this you know, demand for professionalism and this insistence on amateurism. And so he developed this collegiate model. And he basically, in a nutshell, he said, we have an absolute duty to exploit the ever-living hell out of big-time men's football and big-time men's basketball, make as much money as we can possibly make in the marketplace, maximize profits, so long as that money's taken and diverted to interests that can, in some defensible way, be tied to the institution's nonprofit mission. And so he got a free pass on that, but this is really the heart of the hypocrisy in the NCAA business model. And so I want to, Brand starts by trying to fit the collegiate model of intercollegiate athletics into the broader business model of higher education generally, where you take money from profitable divisions of the university and then you subsidize others. So he says, um, in division one, the revenue sports, most often only football and men's basketball, generate resources that are needed to conduct all the other sports in the program. The goal is to maximize the number of student-athlete participation opportunities at a competitive level across sports. This is the goal because athletics participation enhances the educational experience of students, and the institution's goal is to provide the best educational experience to the greatest number of enrolled students. Sounds great, right? Brand then says... 
let me put it provocatively. Athletics, like the university as a whole, seeks to maximize revenue. In this respect, it has an obligation to conduct its revenue-generating activities in a productive and sound business-like manner. Anything less would be incompetence at best and malfeasance at worst. That is, on the revenue side, the input side. Athletics, like the university itself, must follow the best business practices. On the expenditure side, on the output side, as it were, athletics must follow its non-profit mission. So while intercollegiate athletics is often criticized for looking like professional sports on the input side, the generating revenue side, it is rarely understood that intercollegiate athletics and higher education behave like classic nonprofits on the output side in the way they redistribute those revenues to support their missions. The business of college sports is not a necessary evil. Rather, it is a proper part of the overall enterprise. So there you have it. You, you have Brand coming out and saying under this guise of, well, this is just the way universities operate, that in the context of the business of big-time college sports, it's perfectly okay to have this reverse Robin Hood diversion of wealth from the rich sports to the less rich sports in order to provide athletics participation opportunities. Brand loses sight of the fact or just ignores that the producers are overwhelmingly African-American and the beneficiaries are overwhelmingly white. And so Brand then goes on in this 2006 State of the Association speech to say that commercial activity, meaning, for example, the sale of broadcast rights and logo licensing is not only acceptable, but mandated by the business plan. And he says, uh, you know, for example, on behalf of its members, the NCAA negotiates and manages broadcast media contracts for its postseason championships. The NCAA has an obligation derived from its members to maximize the revenue from these contracts and to manage them following the best business practices. And remember that Miles Brand is speaking as the NCAA president. And, and in 2006, the post Board of Regents market is well settled. Football is doing its own thing and is in the, in the BCS format at the time before the college football playoff, making tons of money, but keeping it all to themselves. So that contract that Miles Brand's talking about is the CBS Turner contract for March Madness. And that is the money that he cares about. And that is the money that he claims is is essential to the business model. And so long as it's spread around and spent on people other than the laborers who produce it. So then uh, Miles goes on to say, in the past, and indeed currently, there is some ambivalence about business issues. To some extent, it is felt that it is improper, not quite right, for the NCAA to be engaged in business activity. Amateur sports should be above all that. Athletics departments need the revenue, but working too hard to generate revenue somehow taints the purity of college sports. Then Brand says, nonsense, with an exclamation point, nonsense to those concerns about commercialization and professionalization tainting the purity of amateur college athletics and the integrity of the university. He says, this type of thinking is both a misinterpretation and a misapplication of amateurism. Amateur defines the participants, not the enterprise. I want to let that sit in for a second. I'm going to read that again. 
Amateur defines the participants, not the enterprise. Wow. And he just comes out and says it. So, you know, I talked about Rebecca Blank using the collegiate model uh, in a couple episodes ago. In the episode, I think it was six on the, on the Big Ten, on the NCAA Power Five Circuit Congress in courts, now on the NCAA Board of Governors, evangelizing this collegiate model and this notion that uh, we are under a duty to maximize the revenue from football and men's basketball and then shift it to all these rich white people. And that's okay. That's just what universities do. But inherent in that, and she doesn't say this explicitly, one of the things I love about Brand's 2006 uh, speech is that he just comes out and says it. I mean, he lays it out in very stark terms. But when he says amateur defies, defines the participants, not the enterprise, what he's saying is that he has come up with a way to justify exploitation. That framework that the, the participants are amateurs, but the enterprise is professional. That is an attempt to reconcile this massive inconsistency, one that he mocks with his uh, you know, nonsense exclamation point. But what he is defining is exploitation. Miles Brand's conceptualization of the collegiate model is the absolute perfect definition of exploitation because he's saying, and this ties back to what the historians were saying about using cheap labor to enrich big wealthy interests. That's what he's saying here. So we're going to have this highly commercialized, professionalized enterprise that we believe we have a duty to exploit. And the way that we're going to do that is by not paying the participants because we're going to call them amateurs. And those two realities, this amateur labor force and this professionalized product cannot coexist without accepting these massive hypocrisies and these massive moral inconsistencies. And the, the, the fundamental fact that this business model, by its very definition, is exploitative, and it is racially exploitative. And as Ronald Smith said in Sports and Freedom, it is un-American. Quite literally, it is un-American. And so what I found interesting in both O'Bannon and in Austin is that they didn't call out the collegiate model as Miles Brand framed it. In fact, the collegiate model really hasn't been the focus of how the athletes have framed the, the basic business model. And I don't understand why, why that uh, hasn't occurred. I think that you don't have to look too hard or too far to figure out exactly what the NCAA is doing here. All you have to do is read Miles Brand's 2006 State of the Association speech and then look at how that indefensible model has been carried forward by the NCAA and the Power Five in various iterations. And Rebecca Blank's a good example, as I mentioned earlier. And then there was this displacement argument that was made and custom-fitted for the name, image, and likeness debate, suggesting that somehow uh, that if Zion Williamson got paid for the full value of his uh, name, image, and likeness potential, that that would take money away from rich white kids in non-revenue sports who wouldn't get a free ride on Zion Williamson's back. I mean, it it was ridiculous and it was racist. (laughs) I'm just going to say it. It was a racist concept. It was rolled up in a way that had clear racial connotations and it wasn't called out on those terms. So, so, so much of the debate in college sports and the 
fundamental tensions that have existed. And, and one of the reasons I started in this podcast, at the most fundamental level, looking at why universities are in the business of big-time college sports and looking at the, you know, the people who are responsible on paper and all these reform movements and all this discussion about the inherent tension between professionalization and amateurism and commercial versus non-commercial that have played out in so many contexts uh, throughout the history of college sports and are now are playing out in federal antitrust litigation following Board of Regents. I just don't understand why people aren't going straight to the heart of the matter, which is contained explicitly in Miles Brand's 2006 State of the Association speech. That's it, in a nutshell. And you either accept that or you don't. And big-time college sports interests and the commercial interests and uh, Power Five and the national office and CBS Turner, they've all said, yeah, that's okay. We like this ex- exploitation model. is working great for us. You know, we're happy. We're making millions of dollars. Uh, but when looking at it through an athlete's rights lens— I think that sometimes the complexities of the tension between those two principles of professionalism and amateurism become very difficult to articulate. And that's why I think Miles Brand's very considered, very direct, very purposeful explanation in 2006 puts it right there on the table. And, you know, if a Supreme Court justice were to ask one of the athletes, lawyers, you know, what's the problem with the existing business model? Why should we disrupt the status quo? That lawyer should be quoting from Miles Brand's 2006 speech and his statement that amateur defines the participants, not the enterprise. And uh, as we say in the law, that would uh, be race ipsa loquitur, which is Latin for the thing speaks for itself. Miles Brand's 2006 State of the Association speech on the centennial of the founding of the NCAA speaks for itself. Okay, so I'm going to wind this thing down here, and then we'll buckle up for this Supreme Court argument on Wednesday. And I'm not sure if I'm going to get another episode out before then. But uh, after I listen to the oral argument and then have a chance to listen to it again, once it's in the Supreme Court archives and we have a, a written transcript as well, I will be doing some episodes on that and we'll just see what happens and, and then maybe talk about some of these issues in a little more detail. So a lot of these things that I've discussed, I just want to say, leading up to this oral argument have been abbreviated. So with Miles Brand's collegiate model, for example, I really want to explore that a little more deeply because it's so fundamental to the business model right now and it hasn't gotten the attention that it deserves. So, you know, we'll break all that stuff down. I've tried to condense it uh, in these last four episodes just to kind of prepare for this Austin oral argument and the things I think are likely to come up at the hearing. And, you know, but we'll, we'll be doing a deep dive into some of this other stuff as we move forward in the wake of the Austin oral argument. Okay. So thank you so much for joining. I hope that this has been useful and I hope that you engage in the oral argument, maybe in a different way with the benefit of some of this information. I hope that's the case. So I look forward to having you back again for more of the big amateurism monologues. 